Welcome to High Gluttony. I'm Gretchen. And I'm Becca. And we're two curious ladies who like to cook, smoke, learn, and enjoy a meal with friends. We invite you to join us every 10 days or so here at the High Gluttony Homestead and listen to us make a mess and have a lot of fun. (laughs) So step inside, Gluttonyers. Hello, Becca. How are you today? Hi, Gretchen. I'm so good. I'm very excited to chat with you today. And we've, we're working on something really fun today. I'm going to wait just a minute before I explode with that excitement. But um, to make it short, right up front, we're making a real simple salad of tomato, cucumber, onion, and basil. So we're only going to have a little bit of, of a cooking time today, <laughs> if you will. And then we're doing another really fun thing. But before we get into that, Gretchen, what are you drinking over there? I'm drinking uh, my extra special basil gin and tonic. I did a nitrous infusion on the gin with some high CBD hemp flour that I got from Grow It at Home because this year I am trying to grow hemp myself. So I ordered some flour and some plants. And so everything got here. So I'm excited to start playing with it. And we were going to do our basil gin and tonic. And I thought, well, you know what? I'll throw a little CBD in there. And I'm really enjoying this like basil gin and tonic. I think uh, this is something I might have to add into the rotation. What about, what do you think? Same. I'm so excited. We, we had originally had on our like idealist uh, basil mojito, which I've never had before either, which is kind of like, well, we'll have the basil. Let's do that. And then I don't, both of us were just kind of like, I don't think we even really said it. We were just like, not doing that. What about this instead? (laughs) So we said, what about just a gin and tonic with basil? And then of course, Gretchen fancied hers up. And I ended up putting um, some cucumber peels in it to just add a little bit of that cucumber taste. And then I think we both did lime, right? You did lime too? Yes. Yes. Yeah. It's great. It's really refreshing. (laughs) It's that perfect, like late summer, everything's tomato and basil. I like your idea of adding the cucumber to it. I got to say the hemp though is kind of overpowering the basil at the moment. So that herb is overtaking the other herb, but <laughs> you can still taste the, the basil. So I I think I'd like to try it again, with just the basil maybe. <laughs> You're making a battle of the herbs in your drink. The battle of the herbs. And what are, what are you smoking today? I'm using a pipe today and I am smoking on some Bond Road Kush and it's got lemonine, caryophylline and myrcene. I think it has just a little bit of CBD. Obviously I would want a little bit more, but mostly this is um, a 25% THC. I'm feeling good. I like that lemonine. I'm kind of, I, it's like help. It's making me feel a little bit like body relaxed, but I'm kind of energized. So I, I think it's perfect for what perfect. we're doing today. Mm-hmm. Our, I, it sounds like our strains are relatively similar. My, my cherry punch sativa, which I've cut with some of that high CBD hemp because we like it when Gretchen stays focused in on task. I'm loving cutting all of my weed just a little bit with that hemp and bringing that CBD balance into it. But I also have a terpene profile of lemonine, caryophylline, and myrcene. So we are twinsies today on that. 
I love that. Yes, please. <laughs> this is going to be good. It's good when we start off like this, like real in sync in already. Sync. Mm-hmm. We are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, today, mm-hmm. today we're, we're doing it. So <laughs> mm-hmm. we're doing it. I will tell you finally, after all of this built up suspense, what we're doing it, what doing it is for us today. What we're what doing, doing it. it is. <laughs> Prepare yourself. So, settle in. We are doing something a little different. I've called it. It's a little chef questy, but it's not a total chef quest. It's kind of a hybrid quest, <laughs> but we've been wanting to do a cookbook read through for a while now. And we've kind of struggled with what that format would look like. Should we do it just for Patreon? Is it just one of us reading through a whole cookbook to help you fall asleep or something? Or are we talking about it together? Where was the time going to come from? We already don't have time. So we ultimately decided we both really love Marcella Hazan. And if you don't know who that is, go listen to our ravioli episode right now. Get yourself caught up on some of her amazingness and then come back. But her recipes and her sort of general approach to cooking spoke to both of us. And immediately after making that recipe together, Gretchen just kind of dove in and started getting her cookbooks. So we eventually both ended up with a Marcella's Italian Kitchen cookbook, and we are going to read through it together. This will be Gretchen's read through it a little bit. I haven't. So we're going to get to explore it together. We're going to get to explore it with you, our gluttoneers. And we're going to read the intro. We're going to jump right into salads because, sorry, we are Americans over here. I'm so sorry, Marcella, but we don't do our salads later. We do them earlier. And then we're going to make that really awesome, super simple red onion, cucumber, fresh tomato, basil salad. And then for once, we're going to kind of enjoy a dish together and then read through some more of the salad recipes, probably just until our throats give out or we're too tired to keep going. (laughs) We did talk a little bit about Marcella on that ravioli recipe, but we've since then had a little bit more information come to us or sought out a little bit more information, I guess, if you will. And so I'm going to share a little bit about some new stuff we've learned about her a little refresher of what we already know about her, but set the stage for who Marcella Hazan is. Also, I think we were saying her name wrong in the last, in that ravioli episode. So oops, we got it right now. So she was born in 1924 in the town of Chesanatico, sure, in Emilia Romana. So like Gretchen's favorite region of Italy. Mm -hmm. The best one. The best one. (laughs) Her family did move to Egypt, to the city of Alexandria. Her mother was Italian, but born in Lebanon and wanted to kind of be back closer to that area. So they were living in Egypt and Marcella broke her arm. She broke her right arm. She fell and she was seven years old. And so she had to have this huge cast, like all the way from her shoulder down to her like knuckles of her right hand. It was like a really painful process. And when they eventually took the cast off, it looked like not like it hadn't healed correctly. And her like skin hadn't healed. The bone hadn't healed. So it was kind of like a stressful situation. And she ended up needing to have multiple surgeries and see like a very specific orthopedic surgeon in Italy. And so they moved back to that town of Chesanatico. This was like a small fishing town, I guess. She did recover, but her hand never fully straightened. She 
like was able to use it, but this led to her not really spending time in the kitchen. She just never sought it out after that. And she does say that like literally everyone around her was cooking all the time. So she also never had a need to cook. (laughs) That was what I came across. So I was going to be like, it sounded like she didn't need to because everyone else did. (laughs) Yeah. Which how lucky. (laughs) Yeah, for real. Right. Especially with this influence of Lebanese cuisine and Egyptian cuisine and Italian cuisine, kind of like all in the mix already for her. During the war, I'm not sure which war that would be. I'm so sorry. I'm not good at history. But during one of the wars, she would prepare like gruel from water, polenta flour, mulberry leaves. And I guess that's it. And they would use this to fatten up the pigs. And that was kind of like the extent of what she really had spent her time cooking on. And she eventually decided to study biology instead. And she wanted to become a teacher, which she actually ended up doing for a while. So she's not cooking. She's into the sciences. She's like studying. She's focused on not food. And then she meets Victor Hazan who she ends up marrying. And he's like the exact opposite. He's obsessed with food. He talks about food all the time. He just wants to constantly be cooking. And here she's like, I don't even know how to talk to you about food. And so his energy though, I think kind of like sparks her interest and they eventually move to New York. She's home alone. And it's the first time there's no one else to cook for her. And she's also simultaneously missing being in Italy and being with family and having that access to all these amazing ingredients and just Italian cooking in general. And so she decides to start cooking. She's going to teach herself. And throughout kind of like a process of her studying Italian cooking and cookbooks, she kind of felt like something was missing from that. And it wasn't quite exactly her experience of Italian food that was in these cookbooks that existed to date. And so she wanted to just kind of learn more about cooking in general, though. And at the time, they're in New York, and the only kind of cooking class she could find that was available in the moment was a Chinese cooking class. And so she takes that class. She's like, sure, I'll learn this. This sounds great, too. And the teacher has to leave shortly after, but she'd been doing really well in the class. And the students ended up just like getting to know her and learning that she loved Italian food and wanted to make Italian food. So they just asked her to start teaching them how to make Italian food. And then she like eventually gets on the radar of a New York Times writer and he interviews her. And it's kind of like from there, she's just able to write the books that she wants and focus on the things that she wants and just change America, basically. It said that she was kind of the person to bring, we mentioned this before, and I think this is one of the reasons Gretchen like really gravitated to her, but she's really responsible for bringing such a prominent use of balsamic vinegar to like the American table and like Parmesan cheese previous to that, I don't think was used in the same freshness or capacity that she started using it. So She really has like a ton of influences and obviously we'll go into that. But a lot of the things that we kind of think about as staples, like a lemon roasted chicken or balsamic vinegar or Parmesan, we kind of know here in America because of her. She's pretty cool. 
this is like one of the reasons we're both so excited. And I wanted to read though this quote because she said when she first got to America, she's kind of like taken aback by the food here and some of the culinary practices. Shocking. Absolutely <laughs> shocking. <laughs> so you don't say. <laughs> So she said, oh, and this information comes from Wikipedia, the cookbooks we're using, and then a New Yorker article about Marcella. But it says, during her first days in America, Victor took Marcella to a cafe. Though he was a man with a sophisticated palate, he also knew how to enjoy America's simple gustatory pleasures. He had grown up in New York. He was Italian too, but he grew up in New York. So he's not, he's like, I'm, I know New York food. But she said, when he poured ketchup over hamburger meat, she was appalled. (laughs) She could not comprehend the American impulse to pollute a dish with such sweet sludge. (laughs) I love ketchup. I'm not taking this personally, but that's so funny. I do love this anecdote for so many reasons. (laughs) It just sets the stage for how she cooks. And what is important to her with cooking. And it's enhancing and not like diluting. Yes. But she also said American supermarkets likewise flummoxed her with their produce and meats suffocating in plastic. The poor tomatoes were subjected to chemical malpractice. Gas transported over a long distance, then hastened back to life like zombies. To Marcella's <laughs> shock. Some foods were even frozen. (laughs) And reading the book, she does come around a bit to the frozen foods. I'm sorry. Was that the end? Was that the end? That was it. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I was like, I thought that was the end, but I also got to enjoy that twice because Becca did read that to me before we started. And I completely forgot half of that anecdote by the time she wrote it to me now. so funny there is one other real quick thing I did want to say there's a good interview with her son who is also a phenomenal chef and cookbook author and we used his ravioli recipe in that ravioli episode but um he said when he was going to school his mom would make him like meatballs and like rice and put it in a thermos and he was the only kid who didn't have like a peanut butter and jelly sandwich or tuna fish sandwich or something but instead he'd like pour out this like gourmet Italian dinner like out of a thermos and at first I guess the kids would make fun of him but then they'd start to taste it and then everybody just wanted to eat his lunch (laughs) you're like oh yeah sandwiches kind of suck sometimes it's really boring compared to your like veal cutlet parmesan sandwich over there that makes sense i'm so jealous i'm so insanely jealous of his lunches or to be his friends in that time like later when she's written all of her cookbooks and everything to reflect back that you got to eat her lunch every day (laughs) all right so that hopefully sets the stage a bit for how awesome she is we don't want to spend too much time on this trying not to you know just blabber on forever but I think she's super cool I know Gretchen does too and I'm really excited to hear about this cookbook so Gretchen's going to read the intro to us and do you know when this cookbook was written not exactly the foreword in this book the what this book is about section is dated 1985 
And that seems to be in kind of in line with when she was publishing her cookbooks. So this current printing was from 2017. Okay, so this cookbook is an 80s baby. Let's get into it. Good Italian cooking. Words are capable of mysterious chemistry. Taken singly, the three common words in the title above appear plain enough in their meaning. We can use any one of them in ordinary conversation. Confident will be understood. But put to just two of them together and you can set off a debate. Ask what is good cooking and you may get conflicting replies as you have people willing to offer a definition. Italian cooking? Ask a Neapolitan, a Roman, a Florentine, a Bolognese, a Genoese, a Venetian. Each will describe something different. Good Italian cooking? Who is to say? Let us pull <laughs> the words apart again and turn them around and see what's behind them. She's very flowery. <laughs> I like it. It's fun for me to listen because it paints quite a picture. Yes. She goes on. <laughs> I know we're only one sentence in. Here we go. We've already right. jumped we're all around Italy. And we have one paragraph. Started. Yeah. <laughs> so now we have cooking, a language. To understand what the uniquely human act of cooking represents, it helps to take a quick, far look back. As our biped ancestors were evolving into the human species, two things happened. They formed closely knit social groups whose members were mutually dependent for procuring food, and they addressed each other in spoken language. Oh boy, here we go. <laughs> I'm settling in. Settle in, everyone. To wander deeper into anthropology is beyond the scope of this cookbook and of my competence. <laughs> Honesty. Honesty. But it is no coincidence that the campfires where human words were first exchanged also witnessed at some point the change from merely eating food that had been gathered or caught to preparing it. Language has been described as a loom on which the fabric of society has been tightly woven. To a narrower but nonetheless significant extent, the same can be said of cooking. The evocations of flavored, of shared cooking, like the familiar accents of a common tongue, established one's identity, formed tribal bonds, and chased solitude. Since then, written and oral language has grown to encompass all of man's feelings, experiences, and perceptions. The languages of cooking have also developed so that we use them now to express ourselves subtly or boldly, elaborately or simply, extravagantly or frugally, with elegant restraint or rustic forthrightness in the context of innovation or of tradition. But all of cooking's infinite varieties of expression still take their meaning from a single deep and ancestral emotion, the pleasure that is aroused by flavor. All that really matters in food is its flavor. It matters not that it be novel, that it looks picture pretty, or that it be made with unusual or costly or currently fashionable ingredients that it be served by candlelight, that it display the intricacy of execution, that it be invested with the glory of a celebrated name. Such incidentals may add circumstantial interest to the business of eating, but they add nothing to taste and signify nothing when taste is lacking. I love that loom imaging. The imaging, and, um, yeah. The tapestry of food and culture and stuff. Taste is produced 
by the expressive use of the cuisines that have come down to us. One becomes fluent in a cuisine as in a language, steeping oneself in its idioms, getting its accents right. Cooking well is very like the telling use of language. Expression must be vigorous, clear, and concise. There can be no unnecessary ingredient or unnecessary step. A dish may indeed be complicated, but in terms of taste, every component, every procedure must count. Do not strain for originality. It ought never to be a goal, but it can be a consequence of your intuitions. If the purpose of flavor is to arouse a special kind of emotion, that flavor must emerge from genuine feelings about the materials you are handling. What you are, you cook. Do not arbitrarily shuffle the vocabulary of one cuisine with that of another in an attempt to make your cooking new, quote unquote. There is no more use for such a hybrid than there is for Esperantino. Esperanto? E-S-P-E-R-A-N-T-O. I don't know what that is. I guess it's a language that's not spoken anymore. Oh, okay. (laughs) I don't understand it. If it's a language that's not spoken anymore, it's not a useful language. I can kind of understand the point, but it's like, that's an obscure reference. The cuisines available to us have all the flexibility we can handle with felicity and more variety than our invention can exhaust. I am not suggesting that one must cook in pedantic submission to unalterable formulas. I hope the recipes in this book demonstrate that I do not. I am suggesting that the discipline of a cuisine syntax cadence native idiom can make invention and improvisation eloquent rather than contrived. End of section. I think that's so beautiful. This imagery of food as a tapestry on a loom and you can have different intentions and focuses and variations, but it's all kind of the same thing. You just make a different version of it depending on where you are and what you want and I love that connection to language too and kind of like grasping the full scope of a language and understanding the idioms and the nuances she said kind of like embracing the different spices and ingredients and I love that I think one of the things too that really stood out to me was when she said the purpose of flavor is I think to like emerge emotions. I don't know exactly if she said emerge, but. Something along that line, yes. To to bring them forward or, yeah. I'll have to find it out. Yeah. I think it's beautiful. I love this as a setting the stage for how she approaches all of her recipes and what she wants the the person eating it to experience and and feel. Well, I I like the, um, I want a print of this now that says what you, what, You are, you cook. I love that too. Continuing on then. Next next short section, we have the Italian language of cooking. The cooking of Italy is part that of a large group of cuisines, usually described as ethnic. A more appropriate term, I think, would be vernacular. It is a colloquial family of cooking, spontaneous, pithy, spirited, direct. The originals of Many dishes the Italians cook today were created in the court of the Medicis in Florence, the Soforgias in Milan, the Deestes of Ferrara, of Venice's Doges 
and Rome's Renaissance popes. In Italy, they have long since been mingled in, with earthier, plain-spoken accents of the regional kitchens and rephrased to suit everyday popular usage. Italian cooking owes its vitality, its constantly fresh appeal to this potent mixture of the patrician with the humble. Because it is straightforward, Italian cooking appears simple and invites one to take many liberties. But if one does not pay close attention to its idiomatic flavors, the rendition can easily slip into parody. I have tried to collect and develop only such recipes that clearly enunciate those flavors in the hope that cooking from this book may lead to convincingly Italian expressions of taste. I love that bit. I love that too. I love that she says like the ongoing popularity of Italian cooking is because it has this like really great mix of patrician and humble. Mm -hmm. It's such a way to imagine like mixing of cultures and classes and stuff into food. I read this last night, probably for like the third time. And that really hadn't, sunk in on prior readings of like pointing out that it probably started with the the aristocracy but then it would you know it always does it's like it starts up here and then it just proliferates out throughout culture so this is like the common practice yeah and the, all that regional influence keeping uh-huh. everything like same but just different enough that you can trace it back to really well, uniqueness yeah, and, and part of Italy is that it is so mountainous. It's not easy to get from one part like to the other. I mean, it's a lot easier now, obviously, but it's it's a hilly-ass country. So things did kind of like, it took a while for them to spread. And so you do see like these like little pockets, like where there's this thing that's popular and then you go to this other po- pocket and like, you know, this is popular here and... So it's really fascinating that I don't think I'm being very clear right now, but I'm thinking nice things. I'm having a good time. <laughs> I love it. No, you're, I totally understand what you're saying. It makes it all feel very special to each location. Exactly. She brings all that together really beautifully. Like it's the regional influences of Italy that like really kept it very simple and rustic. When I went to Italy, there were definitely nice restaurants that I went to, but it's all very like simple ingredient kind of cooking. I don't know if I was kind of expecting once I got there that it wouldn't be like that. So it still took me a little bit by surprise. It says a lot about Italian cooking in particular, that like that specific weaving together of ideas. Yeah, she said it beautifully or wrote it beautifully. And I I love just generally, I love thinking about cooking as a language. Food is language and you make, like you said, you cook what you are. And so mm-hmm. you cook what you speak. And that is, I love that. It's great. I mean, it really speaks to the the recipe that we're making today because it sounds so simple, but it also sounds so delicious and has a kind of intriguing twist on it that even when we were picking it, we didn't realize was part of (laughs) that salad recipe. Yeah. Can I read you what she has as a little bit of an intro into that salad that we're going to make? Yes, please. Okay. So again, this is the, well, I'm not probably going to say this in Italian, right? But it's the insalata di pomodori chet. Trioli, cipolla, cipolla, or cipolla uh, e cipolla? basilico. Tomato, cucumber, onion, and basil salad. The Perfect. salad tomatoes we use in northern Italy are usually underripe. 
even partly green, a practice that shocks most visitors from America. I've never known anyone, however, to have suffered from eating them. The reason we choose tomatoes that are not fully ripened is that we prize their firmness and slightly tart, sprightly taste. On the other hand, in central and southern Italy, from Tuscany to Sicily, it is the tender, sweet, well-ripened tomato, the kind northerners would be more likely to use for sauce, that is preferred for salads. Whether you do it in the northern way or not, tomato, cucumber, onion, and basil are the components of the fundamental Italian salad to which one assigns the traditional palate cleansing role toward the close of the meal. In this salad, and whenever else it is used raw, onion is soaked in several changes of cold water to sweeten it. Okay, so it's one cup Bermuda onion cut into very thin slices, which we have already done. One pound of slightly underripe firm tomatoes. I couldn't really find underripe. Mine are just kind of juicy. <laughs> Mine are underripe. Because you know what I thought to myself when I read that instruction? I was like, finally, I use for grocery store tomatoes. (laughs) Six or seven fresh basil leaves. One fourth yellow bell pepper, optional. I'm not doing it, but Gretchen is. One third cup extra virgin olive oil, salt, black pepper, optional. And two tablespoons red wine vinegar. I'm not sure if you missed cucumber because we started talking about tomato. And I'm not sure if you actually said that there's one cucumber. So I'm saying I it now. Miss it. Yeah, okay. one cucumber. Thank you so okay. much. Good catch. I was like, did she say it? Did she not say it? You can't trust me. I'm high. I don't know. No, I jumped right to basil. <laughs> I like that underripe tomato usage because it's always, well, this year I finally, finally broke down and did not buy any tomato plants. I do have one volunteer out front, but. I did not buy any tomato plants because I was like, I'm done. I'm done with tomatoes. I'm not even going to try. So I was like, shit, where am I going to get underripe tomatoes? It's like the grocery stores. <laughs> My family used to do fried green tomatoes. My mom did. Oh, no, that makes sense. You're mm-hmm. sort of that southerny, mid Midwestern, southern, southern Midwestern sort of uh, folk. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah, exactly. But yes, could you please tell me what our steps are going to be? Yes, I will. Step number one, put the sliced onion in a bowl with cold water to cover. Squeeze the onion gently in your hand, but do not crush it, forcing some of its sharp acid out into the water. Let soak for seven to eight minutes, drain, and refill the bowl with fresh water and put the onion back into the bowl. Repeat the operation until the onion has soaked for about 30 minutes and at least four changes of water. Drain the onion, drying it in a salad splinter or blotting it with paper towels, then put it into a salad bowl. All right, step two, wash the tomatoes, skin them with a peeler, cut into one quarter inch thick wedges, remove any seeds embedded in runny or gelatinous pulp and add the tomato to the bowl. Step three, wash and peel the cucumber, trim off both ends and cut it into very thin rounds and add it to the bowl. Wash the basil in cold running water, shake it as dry as you can, tear into small bits, add it to the bowl. All going in the bowl. Step five, remove the core and seeds from the optional one quarter yellow pepper. Skin the pepper with peeler as described on page 21. Oh, I did not refer to page 21. I just peeled it with my soft skin peeler. So there's that. (laughs) Cut it into very thin strips and add it to the bowl. Step six, dress the salad only when ready to serve it. Add the oil, salt, optional grindings of pepper and vinegar 
in that order to the bowl. Toss repeatedly to season all the ingredients uniformly. Taste and correct for oil, salt, pepper, and vinegar. Serve it once with good crusty bread on the side. So excited about this. Oh, it sounds so good. I'm, in, I'm very intrigued about the tomatoes, though. I was like, maybe, maybe this will make me appreciate just like any sort of tomato, you know, like something that's slightly underripe. Like there's something to do with it. Yeah. Okay. So just so I know, when we get into the kitchen, since we already have our onions pre-sliced, we're going to put them into a bowl of cold water, squeeze them just a little bit, not too hard, but just a teeny little hug. And yes, then <laughs> let them sit for seven to eight minutes and do that four times. Correct. All yes. right. Here we go. Marcella's tomato cucumber onion salad. Get some cold water going on here. You give some onion hugs. Okay, yeah, just a little onion hug. Onion hugs. Onion <laughs> hugs. Gotcha. So I'm very interested in how I'm going to feel about this salad because, as you know, I don't really like onion. And red is is a little sweeter, naturally, right? So that when I can usually handle a little bit better. But like, I never eat raw onion. I'm intrigued because I've never done this before. So uh-huh. this is a whole new thing for me as well. So that soaks for seven to eight minutes. We'll drain it, refill it. Do we hug it again each time? I don't think so. I think because okay. it was vo- only specific on that. She just said to repeat, but... Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll read it one more time to see if I need to and interpret it differently. Okay. I'm going to start thinly slicing my cucumber while you are looking at that. How big are you cutting these thinly sliced cucumbers? I'm aiming for a maximum width of an eighth of an inch. Okay. So pretty thin. Pretty thin. Okay. Right. But I have, as we all know, I have terrible knife skills. So they are varying sizes. Okay. <laughs> Rustic. Humble. They are... Rustic. Yes. Rustic. (laughs) It's interesting to me that we leave the seeds and the cucumbers and not the tomatoes. I always take the seeds out of the fresh tomatoes when I'm using them. So I liked that she included that. And, um, but the cucumber seeds stay. Yeah. I think it depends on the cucumber. It depends on the person as well, but it's probably enough yellow pepper since I'm just making a big ass salad for myself right now. (laughs) I found some beautifully underripe heirlooms at the store this morning so Mm. the tomatoes are cut into quarters one quarter inch slices oh mine are kind of i mine are not going to be great for okay yeah mine are not wedges that's sort of what i'm doing okay i think oh i'm sorry i think you're right it's supposed to be wedges oh okay okay but mine are not really well wedgeable (laughs) so (laughs) you have strippy wedges I have I have some weird ass wedges. Yeah. <laughs> Taking the seeds out of this first quartered little guy. Yeah, it's weird to stand in the supermarket squeezing tomatoes to make sure they're underripe. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. And Did I'm you not, put that back because it's not ripe yet? Can I have it? <laughs> I mean, tomatoes once they're off the vine, there's no. That's it. Yeah, you're done. Like it can't ripen anymore once it's off. That's why. It's, okay. That timing Not. is important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, these are some beautifully underripe tomatoes. Nice. Well, I've done it again. I've gotten myself really fucked up somehow. So, <laughs> Luckily, we don't have too much to do. We also need to change our waters. <laughs> okay. Because I think it's been at least 10 minutes. So we oh, overshot okay. slightly. 
And we did learn that you have to give them a little hug after each water change. Okay, give them onions some hugs. Uh, everything else is ready over here, so I'm just waiting on my onion now. Okay, I have to cut two more tomatoes. Okay. All right, so this is our second round? Yes. Maybe we'll do 310? Yeah, I think so. Okay. okay. We don't want to disrespect Marcella, but we're also like, uh, I mean, we don't want to be here forever. Yeah, we already overshot the first round. We might as well stick to that cadence. Could read the thing about fresh tomatoes while we're waiting, though. I guess That's a we good have idea. Time. <laughs> this is what Marcella has to say about fresh tomatoes. It is easy for us to forget that however good canned tomatoes may be, they are a substitute. The real thing is the true, fresh, ripe tomato. I know Italian cooks who never use tomatoes from a can, even in winter. Late in the season, they stock up on firm, ripe tomatoes, choosing a variety that is slightly larger than a cherry tomato, attached in clusters to its vine, from which they will be hung in a cool, dry, airy place. They will keep until the first tomatoes come on the market the following year. They taste marvelous. Try it if you have a cool cellar. A pity it's not a practice suitable in apartments or the overheated houses in which most of us live. In this book, there are several recipes that call for fresh tomatoes. Until recently, at least, genuinely ripe tomatoes have been such a rare item in American markets that I thought hard about suggesting canned tomatoes as an alternative or dropping the recipes altogether. In the end, I decided to keep them as they are. I rejected the canned tomato alternative because it would have failed to deliver the vital fresh taste required by the dish. However infrequently good tomatoes turn up, they do appear in their season. I know because I have cooked with them in America. Therefore, on the understanding that only fully ripened seasonal tomatoes are used, the recipes to me seem worth proposing. When the season reaches its peak, it is desirable to buy fresh tomatoes in quantity and freeze their puree for use in colder months. They will taste sweeter than the best canned tomatoes. Yum. I'm going to do another dump on the onions. Last round of hugs for our Last little. round of hugs for our onions. Okay. I'm going to taste one right now. Okay. Yeah, what do you think? I see what she's saying. A little sweeter. This piece was a little bit thicker. Mm-hmm. So it had like a part in the middle that's, that was not quite as soaked. So that mm-hmm. was quite sharp, but the outside definitely was much, much softer, sweeter. sweeter. Yeah. Cool. So, okay. All right. So we've just finished off our final rinse on those onions and we've added them to a bowl that we're going to mix our salad in. And now we're going to add the tomatoes, cucumbers, optional pepper, and basil into the same bowl. And then we're going to dress it. Awesome. You've already sampled the onion. I did. Yeah. Yeah. But I haven't tried it now that it's had 3.1 rinses. So let me try it again. (laughs) Okay. It's a thinner piece. So it doesn't Mm -hmm. have as much of like a core, but yeah, like it really tones down that acid from the onion. Cool. We'll be a little more bite on that. end. I wonder what doing like five or six changes of water would do to it. Mm -hmm. Just make Mm -hmm. it even more mild. Yeah, I could go for an hour if that means right. all that acid's gone from the onion. But then she's pretty particular about the order of the uh, the dressing, right? Right. Of course, I, I'm now trying to interpret if it needs to be like you add the oil and you mix it. But I think it's just add the oil, add the salt, add the pepper, add the vinegar, then mix. Okay. 
So we're going to do oil first. Gonna, yep. Okay. And drizzling oil. that over. That is a lot of oil. I know. Can't imagine I'm going to need more than that. Next, we are on to salt. And where did my pepper run off to? Oh, there it is. And vinegar. I did not measure my vinegar, by the way, because I have a Same. feeling that <laughs> I didn't need to. So we are adjust. We are tasting to taste. We're adjusting to our own personal taste is what I keep trying to say. And the words will not come out of my mouth. Now I'm mixing that all together. And I think that's it. Oh my gosh. Serve at once with good crusty bread. Come here, crusty bread. We will have you. <laughs> Actually, I put my slab of bread down sort of half of the bowl already so I can toss the salad on top of it a little bit. I'm doing a little more salt, a little more vinegar, maybe even pepper, maybe all of it. No, probably not more oil. Yeah, I think I just need a hair more vinegar, a little sprinkle of salt. But this is awesome already. Mm -hmm. I like the color. Mm -hmm. It's a very vibrant salad. Yeah. I think I may have an appreciation for what she's saying about the underripe tomatoes. You're getting that little tartness? Yeah, absolutely. Mm. I think that's why I keep adding a little bit more vinegar because the tomatoes are pretty ripe for me. But I took a bite of the onion and I, I really liked it. Oh, man. I mean, I just took like a big scoop of the onion. There's like a little clump of onions mm -hmm. and put it in my mouth. <laughs> and you just have that like that really nice oniony flavor without a huge pop of like that onion spice. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm on board. I'm on board mm -hmm. with this. Me too. Oh, my oven for my crusty bread is ready. Yum. I love it. I think we originally said we were going to eat this together and then read some more salad recipes. But I'm, are you tired? <laughs> I, I definitely think that I just really want to eat this salad right now. Uh -huh, and uh -huh. uh, I don't want to read any more shit. So <laughs> so maybe this is where we call it a day. I think you all have had enough of us by now. <laughs> and we're not done with Marcella. So in this right now, we're just going to keep going with the cookbook. And next time we're jumping into appetizers and reading some fun things about cocktails. And it's going to be great. Huzzah, Marcella. Hazan Marcella. Hazan Marcella. <laughs> we are stands. We love you. Gretchen will have every cookbook, I think, of hers by the end of the year. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. Absolutely happening. So stay tuned for more of our Marcella month, as we're calling it. And you'll find our recipes and resources and thoughts. And that's all going to be on highgluttony.com. And you can come find us on Facebook and Instagram. You want to see some pictures every once in a while. <laughs> Sometimes we post them. <laughs> well, this was fun. Let your cooking be your language of flavor or something like that. Something like that. <laughs> that sounds pretty good, too. <laughs> Off we go. Off we go.